Oh, so you like listening to podcasts, huh? Well, so do a lot of people. As a matter of fact, millions of listeners are tuning into podcasts every week, and your next customer could be one of them. Did you know that podcast advertising is one of the most effective ways to advertise your product or service? And it's really easy to get started. Just go to podbean.com slash brands. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands to start boosting your business with podcast advertising today. The profit has to be reasonable, but you have to be able to prove that that profit is consistent with an arm's length dealing. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 280 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. When and how can you do property development within an SMSF? This is the question Bryce Figo of DBA Lawyers in Melbourne will discuss with you in this episode. In this case study we're considering, you've got William, he's a builder, and of course, uh, when a builder has a self-managed super fund, 99 times out of 100, they don't want that self-managed super fund to invest in a, a fully diversified passive portfolio of blue chip ASX listed securities. Instead, they want the SMSF to engage, I should say, in real estate development activities. Now, we know from ATO Regulators Bulletin 2020-1 that in limited circumstances, that can be allowable. And the ATO says, look, it can be a legitimate activity, but you've got to dot all the I's and cross all the T's and dot all the lowercase j's. Um, there's a lot of things that can go wrong in this regard. And also getting the tax implications right can be tricky. So presumably what William wants to do to put some more meat on the bones, he wants to commence an SMSF, he wants to buy real estate, he wants to develop the real estate, he wants to uh, flip the real estate, sell it, make a profit, and of course, enjoy the um, concessionally tax profits. Now, there are many ways people try to implement that structure, and some of those ways are safer than others. So that's sort of the, the set of facts I was keen to look at. Now, I'll, I'll look at the questions that this teases out. Of course, the first question is, well, if these activities constitute a business, can a self-managed super fund even run a business? Uh, of, of course, uh, all of these comments I, I make with the usual sort of disclaimers, uh, you know, this is not advice, don't rely upon it before doing anything with a self-managed super fund. They're very complicated beasts, certainly, and definitely seek professional advice for your circumstances. So don't uh, certainly don't rely on anything I'm about to say. This is much more in the nature of a very general chat. Hopefully it's thought provoking, but I stress at all times, not advice. So can a self-managed super fund run a business? There are plenty of people out there who, well, th there is a dogma out there that no, a self-managed super fund cannot run a business. But look, that's a pretty inflexible dogma. There is no law that says a self-managed super fund cannot run a business. And indeed, if you dig deep enough, you'll even find ATO rulings implicitly recognizing that super funds, including self-managed super funds, can run businesses. But you've just, if the fund is running a business, it just opens a bit of a, a Pandora's box of all these evil things that can go wrong. But like in Pandora's box, the very last thing that came out uh, was hope. <laughs> so it is possible for a self-managed super fund to accurately run a business. I mean, pe people will point, some people point to an old case from uh, 1966 called Scott Number Two about to support this idea that perhaps a self-managed super fund cannot run a business. But look, you know, not, uh, Scott Number Two is an old case, and it, it doesn't really support this idea that the fund can't run a business. It's 
if, if you really go through it in, in detail, which is hard because it's not a case which is readily available online. My copy, I had to, would you believe, go to a law library and use a photocopier. Goodness gracious. What you can find online is there is a page on the ATO's website. If you go to Google and type in ATO, carrying on a business in an SMSF, you'll see a page on the ATO's website, which effectively says, look, self-managed super funds are not prohibited from carrying on a business, but the business must be dot, dot, dot. And they tell you some of the things you need to look out for, but it's it's only a relatively short page. There's a lot more things you need to, to think about when running a business. One of the key things, which I will talk about later on, is when running a business, obviously watch out for borrowings. They're typically a big no-no, but also non-arm's length income. The ATO's page on SMSS running a business doesn't make any reference to this idea of non-arm's length income but it is a very big hurdle and not one that everyone can uh, satisfactorily adequately jump over. So certainly watch out for arm's length income. Again, I'll I'll talk about that a little bit later on uh, today, but it is possible for a self-managed super fund to run a business. Again, though, you just have to make sure all the usual rules relating to self-managed super funds are properly adhered to, the biggest of which is generally speaking, no borrowings. With, with exceptions. That makes it very difficult to run a business through an SMSF because you you can't borrow. Yes. Oh, look, definitely. Unless you go through an LRBA, but that's a beast in itself. Uh, yeah. And look, really honestly, what this means is if there is somebody who says, look, I want my self-managed super fund to engage in property development activities, but in order for this to work, there has to be borrowings. Well, look, there are some square pegs that just can't be jammed into round holes. If a self-managed super fund is going to borrow under, as you say, Heidi, a limited recourse borrowing arrangement, one of the criteria that has to be satisfied uh, is that the underlying asset can't be um, the, the underlying asset can't be fundamentally changed, which, as the tax office tell us in SMSF Regulators Bulletin 2020/1, if you're doing a property development, that's almost certainly going to be uh, considered such a fundamental change to the asset that an LRBA is not appropriate. Alternatively, some people say, fine, instead, my self-managed super fund uh, will borrow to buy units in a unit trust or shares in a company. And then the unit trust, so this, the asset that the super fund is acquiring, shares or units, remains the same. The real estate that the unit trust or the company then on goes and buys, well, that changes. Now, the, the difficulty in doing that, because theoretically it works, but practically, an arm's length lender will never lend to a self-managed super fund to buy shares in a related company or units in a related trust. Uh, once in a blue moon, you'll, you'll see an exception to it, but it's it's so rare, we might as well treat that statement. My, my last statement that you won't find an unrelated lender willing to do it, fine. So you'd have to get a related party willing to who lends to the self-managed super fund. If so, the onus is then on the taxpayer to prove that the, arms, that the terms of the dealings are consistent with an arm's length lender. And that's effectively impossible. I mean, it's a bit like it is theoretically possible, I suppose, for me to flip a coin and it lands neither on heads nor tails, but it lands in the middle and balances. I suppose that's theoretically possible, but you wouldn't bother trying to do it because it's just not going to happen. So look, theoretically, uh, a related party could borrow a lend to a self-managed super fund for the self-managed super fund to buy shares or units in an unlisted company, but it would just be so difficult to prove that that is consistent with an arm's length dealing, you might as well assume that you can't do it. So that's basically the answer to your first question. The first question was, can an SMSF run a business? And the answer is yes, but there are some restrictions that almost 
make it unattractive to run a business through an SMSF. And the main one uh, well, is borrowing and the, the ban of non-arms length transactions. The short answer is yes. So if you want your self-managed super fund to run a business, and if implicit in that business, and, and when I say business, of course, I'm not talking about, you know, a milk bar or a restaurant or whatever. I'm talking about property development. So if you want your self-managed super fund to engage in property development and those activities constitute a business, if you want borrowings to be involved, in, in a nutshell, forget about it. It's just it's going to be so problematic. Uh, you, you just can't do it. So the self-managed seed fund basically has to have enough money in its own right. Uh, and it might get that through rollovers. It might get that through contributions. Watch out for contribution caps. And, and that's the vanilla way of doing it. Now, admittedly, there are other ways that people try to do it involving joint ventures. They say, aha, well, my self-managed super fund has half a million dollars and my family trust has the land. My self-managed super fund will try to build onto the land. And I can't definitively say that that can never happen, but it's very problematic. Uh, And here's why. Self-managed super funds are prohibited from acquiring assets from related parties. Asset is very broadly defined. It includes any uh, legal or equitable right. And if the self-managed super fund builds onto the related party's land, what asset does the self-managed super fund have? Its bank account has gone down, but what asset does it did it get in return? Whenever you know I've needed to really deep dive into this, and I've engaged uh, property barristers, uh, barristers specialising in the law of real estate and that sort of thing, as to what or what asset property barrister do you think uh, the self-managed super fund has? The answer comes back that tech, in a very technical sense. Uh, the self-managed super fund is has a equitable right to receive a portion of any rent referable to the imp- the value of the improvement that the self-managed super fund uh, paid for you know, on the property. Uh, plus, if the property is sold, an equitable right to receive a portion of the sale proceeds referable to the value of the improvement that the self-managed super fund paid for. Uh, and if I say to that next step, okay, to, to the barrister, fine, okay, well, the self-managed super fund has those equitable rights. Where did the from where did the self-managed super fund acquire those equitable rights? The answer is from the owner of the land, i.e., a related party, and that's one reason why I think joint ventures are very, very difficult. Now, maybe someone might want one day want to go to the ATO and receive uh, estimates have specific advice saying, actually, that does not constitute an acquisition from a related party. A, that wouldn't be binding, but. B, I'm yet to see the ATO give that advice. If you had that advice, it would give comfort. Again, though, I would stress it would not be binding. You, you couldn't get a binding answer from the ATO in this regard. So number one, if, if the self-managed super fund has enough money to pay for everything, it might be feasible. If it wants to do borrowings, it's not feasible. Now, the, the next question is, which people often ask is, okay, well, my self-managed, let, let's say the self-managed super fund has half a million dollars, for example. And let's say a related party has half a million dollars. And in order to buy the property and develop the property, it's going to cost $1 million. It's problematic if the self-managed super fund and the related party try and do a direct joint venture. So this this is the next question uh, that things then segue into. The, the next question that things then segue into is, fine, what if we set up a, um, a unit trust? Uh, and with that unit trust, the self-managed super fund buys, you know, for example, 50% of the units for half a million, and the other related party buys the other 50% of units for half a million cash. So suddenly, each of the two um, entities, the self-managed super fund 
and the related party, let's say it's a family trust, has 50-50% of the units and the unit trust has a million dollars cash, which it uses to buy the property for say, you know, however many hundred thousands of dollars and uses the balance to pay for uh, improvement, whatnot, and then sells it and um, dot, 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 everyone becomes rich is the, is, is the idea. And there are a lot of people who'll say, yes, th- this is the structure to use. Uh, we can't use borrowing, but we will effectively inject more cash uh, into the superannuation environment, uh, not with borrowings, not with a joint venture structure, but rather through this unit trust structure. So that, that's the question which I, I now consider, is this allowable? I'm not a fan of it, and, and here's why. Whenever a self-managed super fund acquires an interest in a related trust, or a related company, that is an in-house asset. Self-managed super funds are not allowed to invest more than 5% of their assets in in in-house assets. Uh, There's a very lengthy and rich history about the in-house asset rules. Heidi, uh, do do, do you remember, uh, it was was big news. Um, I always say her name wrong, Um, Ghislaine Maxwell, you would have seen her in the news recently. Yes. She was the um, girlfriend slash procurer of... uh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, the um, yes, yes. Um, anyway, Ghislaine Maxwell comes from a famous or maybe infamous family. Her, her, her dad, uh, Robert Maxwell, uh, who was originally from Czechoslovakia, the bouncing Czech. Our current in-house asset rules, would you believe, are directly referable to his activities in the 1980s and the 1990s. I, I won't go into it, but uh, it's a rich and fascinating uh, story, which is not directly relevant. But uh, when, when I was watching all the uh, the Jeffrey Epstein scandal unfold, I thought, ah, yes, in-house asset rules. Yes, yes, very interesting. Anyway, um, in-house asset rules, there are laws preventing self-managed super funds investing in-house assets, investing in-house, and they can be, to a large degree, traced back to the activities of the Maxwell family. What are the consequences if you breach the in-house asset rules? I know there's a rule that if you have more than 5%, you need to come up with a plan to reduce it to 5%. But what happens if you don't do that? Uh, Sure. Look, failure to do that can have all sorts of negative consequences. Uh, You might be disqualified from having, from being eligible to have a self-managed super fund. Your self-managed super fund might be made non-complying, which effectively means a massive tax bill. The ATO They haven't done this one for a few years, but still on the books, they could do it. They could go to the federal court and say, federal court, please impose a fine. They're they're big fines that the federal court can impose. Uh, Civil penalties, I I should say, to to use more technical language, hundreds of thousands of dollars, or more likely the ATO, in addition to making the fund not complying, giving you a big tax bill and taking away future tax concessions, could also unilaterally impose what they call administrative penalties, uh, which can add up quickly. Those can be uh, tens or fifties or hundreds of thousands of dollars themselves. They can add up quickly. So, um, the, what what are the implications? Having to pay gigantic, you know, gigantic amounts of money to the ATO and not being able to have a, a self managed super fund and having to unwind the investment. Uh, yes. Second question. Yep. This issue of the unit trust being an in house asset is only relevant if related parties involved. If you have an unrelated party owning 50% or more of the unit trust, then the unit trust is not a related asset, uh, an in-house asset, correct? That is possibly correct. It it depends on the facts. Um, So let's say, Heidi, that you're a a builder with lots and lots of experience and you know what you're doing and I'm just a cashed up idiot. And I say, Heidi, I got all this money in my SMSF burning a hole in my SMSF pockets. I don't know what to do. And you say, look, let's start this unit trust Bryce, you put in 
you know, a million dollars from your SMSF, I, Heidi, will put a million dollars from my from the, from the Heidi SMSF into this unit trust that's got $2 million, we'll both nominally be directors, you and me. But if as a factual matter, I just do as you tell me, and I say, and you tell me to sign here, and I say, okay, and I, I yield to your will, basically, that's going to be a problem for you. That would, even though we have a pure 50 50 uh, on paper relationship, there, that would, you would still have a, uh, an in house asset. So if you bring a unit trust into the mix to make it easier for your SMSF to do property development, then the first problem is that the unit trust could be an in-house asset, hence it can't be more than 5% and, and it probably would. So it means you need to have an unrelated party that owns at least 50% and is independent of you. Yes, which Unless, at, at which point, it, that, that's just profoundly rare. I mean, once in a blue moon, You know, you, you will find two people who say, look, me and genuinely arm's length unrelated party do want to go into a 50-50 or a third, a third, a third, or a 25-25-25 arrangement. What uh, about business friends? They would be unrelated. And would, uh, well, it depends on what you mean by business, business friends. Uh, well, partners an interesting term. If they're literally partners, that's deemed related. Yeah. Not, not, not life partners, but, um, uh, but business well, partners. You uh, know, they've done property development before together. You know, one is a plumber, one is a carpenter. They work well together and they do this together. Sure. Um, look, partner is a term that I really have to focus on because obviously, look, it's a protein term. It can mean many different things. If someone is in the legal sense of the word, a partner, as in uh, something that would be recognized as a partner, not in the spousal sense, but in, uh, let's say, a partnership of individuals running a firm of solicitors or a partnership of individuals running a firm of accountants, or, or if there was a partnership of plumbers or, or, or carpenters or, or, or some other you know, tradespeople, they are deemed to be uh, related. So they're, they're just as closely related as husband and wife or mother and son, et cetera, et cetera. They, they, they are deemed to be related. You've got to be careful with the word partner, of course, because people will use that partner, um, the, the, the term partner, very fast and loose. I, I used to be a director of DBA Lawyers Proprietary Limited, and not everyone understands that term director. And if I'd used the term partner, if, I, if I'd said, oh, I'm a partner, they would have understood my role a lot better. It just bothered me doing it because it wasn't technically correct. But it is a term that gets um, used a lot to two people who are partners in the technical sense of the, or in the legal technical sense of the word, are deemed to be related, at which point uh, that 50-50 structure, it's not going to save them from being an in-house asset. So the first possible exception basically doesn't apply from what you are saying. Having an unrelated partner involved yes. in the um, unit trust often doesn't work. Often. I mean, once in the blue moon, it usually, does, but yes. yeah, often it Usually doesn't. it doesn't work, yep. but there is another exception. Yeah, there is another exception. And people, I think, are a bit optimistic about how often it will work. Essentially, if you look at Division 13.3A of the Superannuation Industry Supervision Regulations, essentially what that says is if a self-managed fund invests in a related trust, if all of the following, and it's a very lengthy list of criteria, if all of the following criteria are always satisfied, the investment in the related trust or related company will not constitute an in-house asset. Now, it's a very lengthy list. No borrowings, amongst other things. All dealings must be on arm's length terms, et cetera, et cetera. And all of those things can be managed. However, one of those criteria is that the trustee of the unit trust or the company at no time can be running a business. 
Now, some people, I, I think, are you know, overly optimistic in this regard, and they say, oh, wonderful. Uh, well, because the unit trust is just buying one bit of property, and it's just been set up, it's a, it's a clean skin, it doesn't have a history, there's no repetition in this activity, it's just buying one bit of property, uh, it's going to subdivide the property and sell it. No way that's a business. Well, I'm not so sure. I, I can't definitively say that's always a business, but I can point to case law uh, suggesting that that may well be a business. I think you'd be foolish to definitively say it's not a business. It may well be business. No one could certainly definitively say it's not a business. And I'm not definitively saying it is a business, but um, it may well be at which point that key in-house asset exception, which is often called the non-geared or ungeared unit trust exception, but not being geared is only one of the many criteria. Not running a business is another of the criteria. I think it makes property development inappropriate to try to run through these um, non-geared structures. Quick question, slightly off, off topic. You talk of a Division 13.3A unit trust. Yes. But I think the common term is REC 13.22 yes. or 13.22 unit trust. Can you yes. tell me, are they the same? Or Yes. Yeah, it, it's a bit like, uh, because I mean, look, the division is 13.3A and that division contains various regulations, such as regulation 13.22. A, regulation 13.22B, regulation 13.22C, regulation 13.22D. And a lot of people call them 13.22C unit trusts. The tax office doesn't. The tax office calls them division 13.3A unit trusts in most of them in most of the tax office's materials. And I'm no ATO apologist, but I think this is where the ATO is right, because if you call it a 13.22C unit trust, you might only look at regulation 13.2DC and regulation 13.2DC says th these are the criteria that have to apply at the exact point in time when the super fund acquires or buys the units in the unit trust. And if you just read 13.22C, you wouldn't see any mention about thou shalt not run a business. 13.22D, those are the rules that the unit trust must then satisfy on an ongoing basis, such as you can't run a business. So long story short, I, I call it a division 13.3A unit trust because it's consistent with what the ATO uh, call it. No, I think it's a more technically more informative name, but you're right. The, yeah, a lot of people in the industry call them 13.22C unit trusts, which is a little bit misleading. You can call it that. Don't forget to look at the rest of division 13.3A, such as the rule that at no point in time can that unit trust run a business. So that basically means that our second option of doing the property development within a unit trust that is then partly held by the SMSF doesn't really work very uh, reliably either because Correct. A, the unit holders are likely to be related parties even Correct. if you think they're not related and B, the unit trust runs a high risk of running a business. Correct. If you had nice work if you can get it, but if you had a, a private ruling from the ATO saying this is not a business, and I suspect they wouldn't give you that ruling because that's not strictly a tax question, or maybe SMSS specific advice saying it's not a business, therefore it's not an in-house asset, I would have a lot more comfort to do it, but I've never seen the ATO giving uh, that sort of input. So theoretically, it could be possible, but you know, listeners, you'd have to have some, some quite extraordinary and uncommon and unusual material to really prove it's not a business and therefore not an in-house asset. That's very difficult to get. So in a practical sense, uh, trying to, to use um, a related trust or a unit trust to, to help with funding, it's problematic and, and, and best avoided, which is why if a self-managed super fund wants to do it, it wants to engage in property development, it needs to have a lot of cash directly in the self-managed super fund. The, the next thing I wanted to talk about, 
was acquiring physical materials. And look, I appreciate I just sound like a real wet blanket here. This is the, the regulatory environment people enter when they want their self-managed super funds to do things. So basically, so far we have said it's tricky if you do property development within an SMSF and also highly risky if you do property development within a unit trust that is held by an SMSF. But now we basically go back and say, okay, putting everything aside we just said, if we were to do property development within an SMSF, how would it then, what implications would it then have when we acquire physical materials? Yes, uh, yes, yes. So, you know, the self managed fund can do these activities directly. And look, odds are that the person who self-managed superfunded is, is going to be a builder uh, or, or someone involved in the building industry. Therefore, I, I can you know, almost guarantee I, I know who they want to, to be doing the building, their, their related company or, or something along those lines. So what people often then want to happen is the self-managed super fund signs a contract with the related party builder. And it will say something to the, as is the way typically with, uh, with contracts for, for building is you typically don't just acquire the building services, but it's, it's cost plus. You know, it says, look, I'll pay you, I, the, the client, the self-managed super fund, I've got the land, I'll pay you, the builder, this amount, which includes both the services but also the materials which you, the builder, have gone out to, to Bunnings or wherever and, and bought, and now you're essentially on selling to me with a bit of a, uh, a bit of a markup. However, that's not allowable. Why? As I've referred to previously, uh, there is a law that says trustees of regulated super funds, such as SMSFs, must not acquire assets from related parties. Labor, services, that is okay, but a physical asset Uh, is certainly not okay. So if the related party builder goes out and buys, oh gosh, all the things you need to, to make a, you know, to, to build a property, concrete for the foundations, timber for the frame, uh, gyp rock or uh, pl plasterboard, pardon me, for the walls, insulation, et cetera, et cetera. If the related party buys that and then builds it onto the self-managed super funds land, that's the self-managed super fund acquiring the asset from the related party. Uh, don't take my word for it. The ATO said that in uh, 11 years ago in SMSFR 2010-1, and that's a contravention of... Um, Section 66 of the uh, Superannuation Industry Supervision Act. So that basically means these cost plus contracts that are quite common, yes. where it's material plus uh, a margin for services, those contracts don't work with an SMSF because Correct. the SMSF can't buy the material from the builder. They need to buy it directly. Hence, the services need to be built separately. Correct, correct. Which that, uh, I appreciate. That is very, you know, that there may well be, you know, people involved in the building industry listening to this, you know, spitting out their drinks, saying, you know, what? This is ridiculous. Uh, what planet do you come from, Bryce? Well, I, I suppose I come from planet cis compliance. Uh, I appreciate what I'm describing is very impractical. You know, basically, I'm saying, well, look, ideally, what you want is a self-managed super fund to acquire the materials directly from, you know, Bunnings or whoever, the, the third part, the, the unrelated third-party supplier. And I acknowledge that that's, that's really difficult. That, that's impractical. It's not how the industry is set up. The standard mm -hmm. contract probably need a lot of tailoring to do it. The main drawback is probably because the builders all have special trade accounts with suppliers. Yeah, the trade discounts. And yep, receive yep. 20, 30, 40%, oh, no, 40%, no, but, you know, 10, 20, 30% yep. of discounts. When yep. now the SMSF starts buying the material, of course, the cost of the material immediately goes up by those discounts that are now no longer available. Yeah. yeah. That being said, though, if my business, if because of my business activities, my self-managed super fund does not incur, incurs less than an arm's length expenditure, 
that itself, uh, you know, because of the activities of non-arms, uh, of a, uh, due to non-arms yes. length dealings. Um, sorry, I'm being a bit inarticulate. Yes. Non-arms length income. I appreciate people bend over backwards because of their trade discount, but it does that in itself causes the spectre of non-arms length income. And I, I might just pause to observe that the non-arms length income provisions were recently beefed up. There is a draft ATO ruling from 2019 that is still in draft format. It's uh, um, LCR 2019 D3. As you can tell from the title, that draft was released in 2019. So here we are in 2021, still waiting for the draft to be finalised. So we, we do have a little bit of uncertainty there. And that, draft, and that draft covers non-arms length expenses. Yes, which and, and a non-arms length expense can cause the income to be non-arms length income, including a net capital gain, which is taxed at you know, essentially the highest marginal rate, which is dot, 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 a disaster. No one gets involved in SMSS to pay 45% tax. Beware of those trade discounts. Yeah. And then there are all sorts of ways people try to, to get around that. They say things like, oh, can't we just say that the related party builder is acquiring materials as a mere agent for the self-managed super fund? Easier said than done. Uh, theoretically, they could be done, but you know, I think practically if to do it properly, it would be just as easy for the um, self-managed super fund to buy it directly. That would be the workaround. It just means yeah. that cost plus doesn't work. It needs to be built in a different way than cost plus. Look, for, for completeness, there are other solutions that people attempt, but they're not a slam dunk, silver bullet solution. But there, there are other alternatives, but yeah, they've got their own. We, we've discussed the safe, we've just discussed the safe way, which I acknowledge for a lot of people to say that that's too hard. So the, the easy way was method one, self-managed super funds acquire the, uh, the materials directly from um, the supplier. That's method one. Uh, method two is a self-managed super fund says, okay, well, the builder will, will just buy things as normal, but really the builder is acquiring it as an agent for me, the self-managed super fund. Whenever the builder buys something as they normally would, really that's an agent and just instantly I own it. On its face, that appeals to people, but look, I, I would shy away from that because people can put in place documents saying one thing is true, but in substance, I... There's a technical term for this, and it's it, it sounds very nasty. I don't mean to be rude to anyone, but the technical term for this is sham. If the self-managed super fund and the builder put in a document saying the builder is the agent for the self-managed super fund, and whenever the, the builder buys something, it buys it as an agent for the self-managed super fund. Number one, I think a lot of people don't want to grapple with the GST implications of it, but putting that aside. But number two, if that were truly an agency relationship, the self-managed super fund would be called upon to reimburse the, the builder basically instantly, uh, or as the ATO talks about, so as not to give rise to a borrowing, immediately is the term that you see in uh, SMSF 2009-2, which is their ruling on borrowing. So, hmm. so that, that's method two. And then th there are other methods such as using a bear trust, which look can work, but people, um, in a practical sense, you don't see many builders um, wanting to use these other methods. So look, the easiest way, I think, and, and certainly the way that's going to um, look the cleanest when it all is said and done, is if the self-managed fund buys it directly, method one. So that's acquiring physical materials. So next yes. is the question about acquiring the services. Yes, yes. So there is no prohibition on a self-managed funds acquiring non-physical services or labour from related parties. We, we know that, that that's fine. Uh, the tax office tell us in SMSF uh, ruling 2010-1. But what we must be aware of 
are the new gnarly non-arm's length income provisions. Uh, prior to mid-2018, these provisions simply said if the amount of income including net income that a self-managed super fund makes or any super fund makes is um, is greater than what is consistent with an arm's length dealing. Previously, you just said that income is going to be less expenses taxed at the highest marginal tax rate. However, from 2018 onwards, those provisions have been beefed up and they now expressly say if in gaining or producing the income, the the fund does not incur a loss outgoing or expenditure that the fund might have been expected to incur had it been dealing at arm's length or if it's just less than arm's length, instead of paying the arm's length amount of $10 uh, for the service, it only pays a non-arm's length amount of $6, then all the income is tainted and taxed at the highest, all the net income is tainted and taxed at the highest marginal tax rate, which raises this really interesting question to say the least. What if the the trustee slash director is a builder and the trustee slash director wants to do building basically for free? Uh, Well... The draft ruling, which I referred to before, um, LCR 2019-D3, it doesn't expressly talk about builders. It talks about other things such as real estate agents and accountants. So much much smaller beer if you think about the value that an accountant or a real estate agent would add to an SMSF's investing activities. No disrespect to accountants or real estate agents, but let's face it, you know, it's the builder who can take green acres and turn it into, you know, umpteen houses and sell it for a squillion dollars profit if, if they if they do things just right. Whereas, you know, having a very well-managed rental property, uh, you know, compared to a badly managed rental property might make you a bit of money, but yeah, it's not comparable. Anyway, anyway, that's still in draft form, so we can't rely on it yet, but, you know, it's pretty, you know, it's got a lot of helpful indications as to where this thing might be finalised, which hopefully will happen soon. It's been in draft form for all over a year now. And basically, if the builder does something not in their builder hat, but in their trustee slash director of trustee hat, then that's okay. Now, how do you know if you're acting in your trustee slash director of trustee capacity? The ruling goes to a bit of detail and it says things like, if you're not using your business's equipment, if you're not acting under your business's insurance policy, well, then you probably are wearing your trustee hat and it's okay to do work and not charge. But gee, if we're talking about something like building, well, you're almost certainly going to be using the, the you know, the the equipment of the, the building business. So long story short, you'd also want to work out a way to remunerate the builder on an arm's length nature on an arm's length basis. I mean, look effectively what, what, what people have to remember here is um if the ATO come and audit this at the end of the day, you want to say, yes, the funds made a profit, but that profit is consistent with an arm's length dealing. There, there was one case not so long ago. GYNW, where um, the, the facts were different, didn't involve building, um, but it involved a business and you know one of the members of the self-managed super fund worked in the business and a $200 investment netted, to $200, netted a return of over $2.5 million. Now, when you get those really dramatic facts, gee, you'd have to come up with something pretty extraordinary to say that is not non-arms length income. And indeed, the taxpayer could not come up with anything extraordinary. It was non-arms length income. There was a primary tax bill. There were penalties. Holy guacamole. So long story short, I'd feel far more comfortable if the trustee slash director is a builder, if the trustee slash director is remunerated, i.e. when the ATO look at this, you can say, well, it has the fund has incurred all the same expenditure that it would have incurred, even if um, we didn't have a, a builder as a director.
So no sweetheart deals. Now, so the, the, maybe when the LCR is finalised, we've got a bit more leeway. But, uh, I, but look, we, we just have to see. I think that's the conservative answer until this um, ruling is finalised. I'm yes. sorry, I cut you off, Heidi. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. So the profit basically has to be reasonable. It has to be similar to what's an, another builder outside of an SMS. Yeah, yeah which I appreciate is easier said than done. And, and I might also just, I think I stated this earlier, uh, this is tax law now we're talking about, which means you're, the onus is on the taxpayer to prove something. So in other words, guilty until proven innocent. It's not just that the profit has to be reasonable, but you have to be able to prove that that profit is consistent with an arm's length dealing, which, look, it's easier said than done. And I realize that's a bit of a turnoff for people, but hey, I'd rather that they know that before they do it than when they're in the middle of an ATO audit and they're, they're committed to, to fighting it. And the, you, know, you wouldn't want a client to turn around and say, gee, if I'd known life would be this hard, I wouldn't have bothered. But this, these are the, the issues you've got to grapple with if you want an SMSF to engage in property development. That's it. So that's the hard stuff. If uh, if anyone's still listening, <laughs> it's all blue sky from here. Nah, look at yeah. You've, you've, again, you've got a dot i's and cross t's, but those were the the, the major uh, hurdles. So if you basically want to put it into very simple words, it means you can do property development within an SMSF if you have all the funds you need within the SMSF and there's no borrowing yes. involved. Then you can't do a cost plus contract Correct. you need to buy the the smsf needs to buy the material directly but yes. then the smsf can procure the services of the builder slash trustee as long as those services are paid for at arm's length correct and that's a if i don't say so myself Heidi, and oh with, without trying to flatty overly but that i thought that was an excellent summary i mean there's obviously more to the picture but i think those are those are the real key uh, if, if people are scared away by that summary then you know it, it may well be a property development is right for their smsf but yeah th th those are the um the, the main hurdles that most people stumble on Welcome back. So property development within an SMSF is possible if your SMSF, number one, has the funding and so doesn't need borrowing. Number two, buys the material directly from suppliers and not through your building company's account with trade discounts or you have some watertight agency arrangement. And number three, your SMSF receives invoices from you for your building services at arm's length, so at market prices. Tomorrow we will look into a topic that will only affect you if you have US citizens or green card holders as your clients, and that is how you treat the US corona payments your US clients received last year, how you treat those in their Australian tax returns. That is the question we cover tomorrow, but just skip it if you don't have US clients. For you, if you don't have US clients, then the next normal Australian episode will be next Monday, and it will be about child support payments. How are these calculated and what to look out for depending on whether your client is the paying or receiving parent. So until tomorrow or next week, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.
Are you the proprietor of a business selling shaving kits, meal packs, audiobooks, or anything else of the sort? Have you failed to tap the market of people who love hearing their favorite comedians talk about their boring lives? What's wrong with you? 57% of U.S. consumers listen to podcasts every month. That's a lot of ears that could be hearing about your brand. Go to podbean.com brands to learn how it do. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands, and you could be the one talking instead of me.